stutter. We're going we're gonna to stick and just work through just one verse of 1 Corinthians 11. If you're thinking, boy, how's he, you know, what are we going to do there? That, must, that sounds really boring. No, no, really, it's really exciting. And I want to show you the wonder of this verse. So let me start off in Luke. In Luke's gospel, Jesus uh, is there. It's the last night of his life on earth. And he celebrates the Passover meal with his disciples. And it with these words, when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. He said to them, uh, he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover meal with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Until find, and taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. He took bread, gave thanks, broke it and gave it to them saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. They're familiar words, aren't they? I want to suggest to you that the whole of Christianity hangs on these verses. They are absolutely paramount to our, to our faith. Verse 24, this is uh, 1 Corinthians 11, where, we, where we're going to work through. Because if you just go back to verse 24 for me, please. Thanks, Ricky. Verse 24 is where we left off last time. We'll just go. Do you think we could just go backwards? Oh, you can't. Did all that happen by itself? Maybe it did, yeah. Here we go. So do you think we could shoot right back to the beginning? Let me just see if we can. Let me just try there. There. We'll start again, okay? Would you just bear with me? Here we go. Verse 24. Okay. So Jesus is there with his disciples, and he says these words. It breaks bread. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That's as far as we got last time. Now this time, verse 25. This is what I want us to focus on this morning. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Look, they're familiar words. We say them regularly at every communion service. Perhaps never really stop to think of their significance. And I want to suggest to you this morning, friends, that the whole of Christianity hangs on those words. They are the absolute bedrock of our faith, of everything we're doing now and the reason that we're doing it. They are central to Christianity. They are, those words, Christianity. How so? That's not an, a dish you order in a Chinese restaurant. Okay? It's two English words. How so? Okay? How so? How are these fundamental, paramount, intrinsic? How are these Christianity? This is Christianity. 
I want to take you on a journey. Come with me if you would. And hopefully these pictures will work properly. Uh, let's see if they do. Abraham, let me start with Abraham. I want to take you right back to the beginning. And I'll show you why those words are absolutely central to our faith. You see, for, for Jewish people, their history goes right back to this fella. Who is he? Oh, it could be Jesus. I was thinking, well, not even Moses. Going right back. Where does the whole nation begin? Abraham, don't you recognize him? Come on. I mean, you would have thought if I shot a picture of Abraham, you'd recognize him, surely. Okay, he starts right back with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. By the time we get to Jacob, there's 70 of them. And then we go from Jacob to his son Joseph, who gets sold into slavery, lands up in Egypt. Eventually, Joseph becomes prime minister. He reveals himself to his brothers, and he calls his own family, the whole of them, all 70, down to Egypt. They prosper there. Amazingly prosper, pro prosper, prosper. They go from 70. Does anybody know what the number is? They go from 70 to one number by the time of Moses. Yeah, two, probably two. Yeah, closer to two, but you know, maybe more. Closer to two, with, we're talking millions, go from 70 to two million people. By this time, things get bad for them in Egypt. They become slaves to Pharaoh, then mistreated. God raised up Moses, and through the Passover, okay, he delivers them from slavery. From the Passover to the crossing of the Red Sea, finally on the other side, God establishes the terms of their relationship. It's the only way that God can relate to humanity because of our fallen nature. That in order to continue in relationship with the Jewish race, he establishes a contract an agreement is a bilateral contract. At the heart of that contract is what? Is it's the commandments. It's the commandments. At the heart of it. And in this contract, I want you to show you something about this contract. It's a contract that can be broken. It's always bilateral. Deuteronomy 28. If however, however, if you do not obey the Lord your God. You're part of the contract. And you do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I'm giving you today. All of these curses will come upon you. The point is simply this. That God is saying to the Israelites that he enters into relationship with the other side of the Red Sea. The contract that he enters into them with. The bilateral contract is that it can be broken. And by breaking it. Instead of God's blessings, God's curses come upon the people. So that bilateral contract or agreement is more, more commonly called what? What do we call it? That contract, that bilateral agreement? It's the covenant. There it is. The bilateral agreement that God enters into Israel with is the covenant. Verse Deuteronomy 4. Let me just take it to the next one. What is that saying? What is that verse saying about the relationship of the covenant to the Ten Commandments that we, the theologians refer to as the Decalogue? What is that saying? Someone have a look at that. What is that verse saying about the relationship of that first covenant with those Ten Commandments? 
It's teaching. It's foundational. It's saying, Jim, can you see? That that covenant is the commandments. That there's no distinction between the Ten Commandments and the, and the covenant of, with Israel, the Mosaic Covenant. They're so closely tied to each other that in several places in the Old Testament, it can be said that the covenant that God establishes with Israel is the Ten Commandments. That's the covenant. And the reason I'm emphasizing that, it tells you this at least, doesn't it? If those Ten Commandments are so foundational to the first covenant, if you replace the first covenant, what inevitably must happen to the commandments? You have to repeat this, it's a package. And I said, well, we have to understand that the covenant and the commandments come together. It's like when you're married to Teresa, Jim, you've got a family too. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, remind him about that next time he complains about your family. Okay, is that they're so tied together that if you remove one, you lose the other. And it's exactly why Hebrews 7 says these words. We're going to look at these. Look, this is all a prelude to the Galatians series. We're doing a 12-sermon series in Galatians starting in March. These are all just intros to that series. We'll deal with this when we get to Galatians. What's Hebrews 7 saying? So, look, Jesus, so all the priesthood, before Jesus was from what line? What line did you have to be in if you wanted to be a priest in the Old, in the old Covenant? Aaron, the Aaronic line, okay? Jesus is not from that line, okay? He's the wrong tribe, and yet he's our priest, which means what is he doing to the Aaronic line? He's breaking it. He broke it. So, and then what Hebrews says, if you break that priestly line, if you have a new priesthood, what happens to the law? You lose the law too. Can you see the point? You can't change a priest. Because once you change a priest, you're saying, that's, I'm no longer following that. And when you no longer follow that priestly line, you can no longer follow that law. When you lose that priestly line, you lose the law system. You lose the entirety of that law system. More of that in Galatians when we get to it. So here's the thing. Although the people promised to keep the commandments to keep the covenant, what do they do over and over and over and over and over again? They break it. They profane the covenant. And it comes with repercussions. Ultimately, what was the final and expansive repercussion of their continual breaking of the covenant? What did God eventually do? Firstly, in 722 BC, exile the ten northern tribes by the Assyrians. He gave the southerners a further opportunity, a chance, because they were a little more godly, only a little more godly, okay? Eventually, what happens to them in 586? Because they kept breaking the covenant. They were exiled by Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, finally, that exile. You see, the, the issue is this. The covenant didn't work. That's what we to understand, that the Israelites kept breaking it. They never stayed in right relationship with God. That's why there was constant famines and constant issues and constant uh, difficulty from their enemies because every time they broke the commandments, God let their enemies invade. You see, the first covenant never worked. It never kept people 
in right relationship with God. And even the sacrificial system that God gave them to, to ensure that they could stay in right relationship, temporarily at least, by sacrificing their animals, that was just abused. And so you know what, you know what happened? You thought to yourself, well, it doesn't matter if I sin, because all I have to do is what? Go and get a lamb. I'll just get a lamb. I'll take him to the temple, have him sacrificed, and I'm okay, Jack. They were abusing the one means of ensuring that they could stay in covenant. So much so, this is what God says to them, and it's even a stronger one in Amos. This is the less stronger one. Look what he says about their sacrifices. What does he say? Someone read it there. Next verse, please. Thank you. Just read the highlighted bit, somebody, out loud. What are they to me, your sacrifices? Who cares for them, Israel? I have no pleasure. But he was the one who set it up. He told them to do it. And now he's saying, they stink. Stop it. Don't sacrifice another lamb to me. Because you're abusing the grace I've given you. Okay? Can you see the issue? They're abusing. So even the means of staying in relationship, they abuse. So much so, this covenant was having such an ill effect in God relating to humans that even whilst they were within the covenant, God began to tell them that he's going to establish a new one. Listen to this, Jeremiah. There's lots of it all over the Old Testament. Jeremiah 31, the time is coming because you're such a wretched people. And you refuse to obey me. A time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. The house of Israel. It will be not like the one I made with Moses, the one you kept profaning, and so you're constantly out of relationship with me. It will be nothing like that. Okay? Because they broke it. Okay? It, I think there's another verse. Verse 33, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws not on tablets of stone. This covenant will not be on stone, but written on our hearts. We're going to look at more of that again in Galatians. This is all designed to make you come and sit through 12 sermons on Galatians. Okay? So make sure you do that. So within the first covenant then, there's hope. They keep breaking it. They keep falling out of the relationship with God. They keep suffering. They're getting nowhere. And God plants hope that the days are coming when he will establish a new covenant that will do what the old covenant could never do. But let me return to the first one. I want to show you how the first covenant was cut. So what we have to understand about covenants, covenants are cut. It's the alternative word for inaugurate or establish. They're cut by what commodity? Look at verse 24, uh, 8, Exodus 24, 8. What commodity? Could we go back a verse, please? Back to Exodus 24, please. Thank you. Uh, what commodity? Uh, uh, and back again. Thank you. Uh, what commodity do we need? Uh, let me just get the verse off for you. Thank you. What commodity do we need, there it is, Exodus 24, to make a covenant actual? 
blood. Without blood, there can't be a covenant established. You can't cut a covenant that God establishes with these people without blood. It's why Moses, what does he say? He's establishing this covenant with his people in order for them to be able to relate to God in this bilateral covenant. And it must have blood. And here it is. Listen to these words. This, he's just sacrificed bulls and goats. Okay. He takes the blood. He sprinkles it. And he says these words. This is the blood of this agreement. Here's the blood. His death that's ensured this covenant can be established. It's the Mosaic covenant. It's established by blood. Those words were ingrained into Jewish thinking. Every Jew knew those words. This is the blood of the covenant. It's what established the Jewish nation. It's what put the Jewish nation into relationship with God. It's what gave them the commandments of that covenant. Every Jew knew these words are immortal, ingrained. This is the blood of the covenant. And now, and now, 1,500 years on from that moment, 2,000 years back from where we are in our moment, Jesus, on the very night of the Passover, what were they remembering on the Passover? What are they remembering? God's rescue from slavery, the sacrifice of an innocent being, the crossing of the Red Sea. On that very night, Jesus comes to his disciples. He stands before them. He takes bread. He takes his cup and he speaks what? Next verse, please. What does he say? No, no, start again. Say the whole thing, please. What does he say? This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Moses says, this is the blood of the covenant. Jesus is now saying, this is the blood of the new covenant. You're a Jew. You're sitting with Jesus. You've, all you've ever known is a mosaic covenant that is established by blood. And here's Jesus and he says to you, this is the blood of the new covenant. What are you thinking? What are you thinking? Yeah. Thanks, Graham. What did he just say? What did he just say? What's wrong with the old? Well, what are you doing with the old? We're Jews. Excuse me. Our identity is tied to... What are you saying, Jesus? This is revolutionary. What do you think Jesus said he'd be behind closed doors? What would the Pharisees have done to him? Exactly. What's he talking about? You see, a lot of Jews knew there was a new covenant coming. No one ever knew. Because no one ever read those verses with any real expectation. And here's Jesus. And he's saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. You see, the first covenant was cut by the blood of what? Animals. What's Jesus saying about the cutting of the second covenant? My blood. Well, for a start, this is gobbledygook, isn't he? What's he talking about? You're the disciple. He's always talking about death, isn't he? And he's going to die. He's the Messiah. So what's he talking about? Jesus is apprehending what's going to happen in just a few hours. 
his crucifixion. And his crucifixion is going to be the means of establishing this new covenant. See, when you see all that, when you remember the Lamb that was necessary for the covenant, and then when you hear John's word, remember John the Baptist? He's baptizing his disciples. He sees Jesus come down the hillside. When he sees Jesus, don't do it just yet. Uh, hang on a second. What does he say? When he sees Jesus, what, the, what words does he use? The words of the covenant. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the Lamb of the covenant. There they are. That's what he's saying. That's what John is saying. This is the Lamb of the covenant. This is him. This is the one that every lamb looks forward to. He's the one. His blood will be the one that establishes a new and ongoing relationship with God's people. There he is. Can you see why those words of John are so pertinent? They're relating to the covenant. After the supper, Jesus took the cup. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, says Jesus. Loaded? Yeah, I think it's the next slide. Loaded? Yeah. This is an enormous moment not only in the history of the Jews, in the history of the world. Not only in the history of the Jews, but in the history of the world. And we've only just scratched the surface. Let me say a couple of things here, again, in preparation for Galatians. By the virtue that this covenant is new, look, ever bought a new house? When you buy a new house, what are you saying about your old house? Unless you're loaded. Okay. What are you saying about your old? But the, the virtue of buying a new house, what are you saying about the old? You're leaving it. Unless you're going to share the house each. Okay. Sounds appealing, doesn't it? <laughs> okay. See, by the virtue of it being new, you're saying something about the old. You can't get away from it. You're saying something. You don't in, look, you, do you use this terminology in Britain? If it's not broken, don't fix it. You see, if you're introducing something new, what are you saying about the old previous one? It's broken. There's something wrong with it. By the very fact it's new. And in fact, this is what Galatians says, Galatians 2. Okay, Galatians 2, 16 and 3, 21. By observing the law, Mosaic law, the Mosaic covenant, what could you never be? Never be right in God's sight. Never. Did you know that? The Mosaic law never made a single person right with God. Do you get that? If you don't believe me, I could be a liar. What's Paul saying? Say it again, look. By observing Moses, by keeping the commandments, by keeping the covenant, not a single person was ever made right with God. Do you see that? And he continues. For if the law had been given that could impart life, because if you really could do that, then what? Then why do you need Jesus? Get rid of Jesus. That's what he's saying. 
If the law could really make you right with God, get shot of Jesus. That's exactly what he's saying. Can you see the point? He's saying, look, the reason there's a new covenant is the first one didn't work. Doesn't work. He never made a single person rob God. It's why the writer to the Hebrews in chapter 8, we looked at it last time, says these words, by calling this covenant new, he has done what? Obsolete. And if you're thinking, oh, that's a mistranslation, here's the Greek. Next slide, please. Paleo, okay? Greek word. It means to make passive or to become worn out or declared obsolete, decayed or waxed away. Okay? Just in case you don't believe me. What's he saying about the old covenant when the new one is established? What happens to the first covenant in its entirety? Everything, everything associated with every law. It's gone. It's gone. That includes the Decalogue we said last time. Now that doesn't mean that you can be lawless and start living like Lynn. Does it? You see, because what does Jesus do with the new covenant by replacing the old and removing the old and making it obsolete? What does he do with his new covenant? Let me give you an example. He's on the Sermon on the Mount. He's saying these words for which he should have been stoned for. You've heard he said, do not murder. He's quoting the old covenant. And then what does he say? The very next sentence. But I say to you, don't be angry. What's Jesus doing? What's he doing with the covenant? What's he doing with the laws? He's removing a rubbishing one and replacing it with a better one. He's removing the don't murder law. You can now murder. Okay? He's removing it and replacing it with what law? Do not be angry. Okay? Now, can you murder somebody without being angry with them? No. Well, the point being is you would never want to murder if you never fall out of a relationship with somebody. Who's ever murdered their best and favorite friend? Who's ever done that? Bro? Has anybody ever murdered their best and favorite friend? The whole point is if you can deal with the root, you never get to the effect. So the Lord has gone. But Jesus' rule for living is way higher than anything the old covenant could ever have asked us to do. I mean, you know, look, the obvious one, do not commit adultery. Well, in all my years of pastoring, I've never dealt with an adultery case. I don't even need that law. Seriously, I've been a pastor for over 10 years. I've never once dealt with adultery. Who needs that law? But you know what I deal with regularly in my ministry? When I'm counseling my congregation? It's not adultery. What is it? No, that's a good one though, thank you. But I was thinking of something else to do with adultery. I have another, have another thing. Something to do with adultery. I, I never had to deal with adultery, but I always deal with this one. Lost. 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 For adultery. Never adultery, but the loss to want to commit adultery, to want to sleep with someone other than their spouse. And so you can see, when Jesus replaces the law, he's not making it easier for us, is he? What's he doing? 
He's making, he's rushing it up. Rushing it. The, the, the new covenant is much stronger than the old. Okay, so, so we're not to think, oh, he's got rid of the law, we can do whatever we want. No, Jesus' law is far superior than anything Moses gave us. So the new covenant is superior because it, it replaces one. It does what the first one couldn't do. The thing about the Mosaic law, it kept people out of relationship with God. In fact, Paul says it was the equivalent to the ministry of... I think it's the next slide. What did Paul call it? The law. Death. The ministry of death. It could never facilitate worship. It could never keep people in relationship. In fact, it brought death, alienation, and distance. And so Jesus, on the night of his betrayal, when he sits with his disciples and takes wine and says, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood he was doing away with he was saying look i'm doing away with everything you know about being a jew and being in covenant and moses i'm rubbishing it all in one soup he was rubbishing the temple next slide please he was rubbishing the temple the temple what did the temple speak about alienation from god this is my castle and you're not getting anywhere near it Keep away. He was doing away with the temple that alienated people. Even he was replacing it with a marble temple himself. And then he places the, the chief artifact of that temple, the presence of God, into whom? You, lean even you, possess the presence of God. He was, when he says those words, he was doing away with the temple. When he says those words, he was doing away with the sacrificial system. The thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of lambs and goats and bulls and sheep. He was doing away with it because he himself was going to be the ultimate and final sacrifice for sin. He was doing away with the priesthood. You know, we no longer have priests who mediate our relationship with God. I am not your priest. I'm Montaz. I do not mediate your relationship with God. Who mediates your relationship with God? Jesus! He done away with the priesthood, the robes, the formality, the fear of rejection. He did away with the rituals, the protocols, the traditions, the hoops you had to jump through. And he made the way to God plain. What did he say? I am the way. Okay? He did away with the law. The whole of the law. Not just the Ten Commandments. Every other commandment associated with it. He did away with the rules. The expectation. The constant failure and fear of judgment. And replaced the whole judicial system with his own principles of faith. One of the things we're going to deal with Galatians, he wasn't replacing one law with another law. He was doing away with the law and replacing it with a whole new way of relating to God. There were laws involved, but a whole new way of relating to God. So Jesus' words, Matthew, sorry, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 25, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Was deconstructing, undoing, nullifying, and setting aside Judaism and establishing 
an international community by a new name. What was the new name of that international community? Of people of faith. That's the people, but what's the name of the thing? This new international community, made up of both Jews and Gentiles now, begins with a K if you're in infant school, or a C if you're in adult school. What is new? This inf- this this. No, church. Thank you, Des. Okay, free cup of coffee for you. Des gets a free cup of coffee today. Okay, okay, right. Church, the church now is where people are brought into to be in relationship, the beneficiaries of this new covenant. It's a covenant that Jesus gives by grace. It's free of charge. It does what the last one never did. Do you know this one, what he can do? It guarantees your position in the covenant from the moment of faith to the moment of death. It guarantees it. Here's Jesus' words. Listen to these. Because you cannot break it. My ship listens to my voice, verse 28. I give them eternal life. They enter into my new covenant and they shall never perish. No one can break that covenant. There's not a single soul, single being, the devil or otherwise, that can come between you and Jesus. It's why Paul says in Romans, he has a big list, doesn't he? I have to read them to you. What does he say? No, the height, no, I won't read it. I'll just call it the height, no depth, nor any other thing can do what? Because the new covenant cannot be broken. It's one way. It's eternal. You don't enter into a relationship with Jesus and then disenter into a relationship with Jesus. That's rubbish. The people who disenter the relationship were never in it to begin with. Do you understand? This is a covenant that can never be broken. You can never be lost because it's not down to you. It's unilateral. It's all down to Jesus. And in the agreement, sin doesn't exclude you from it. That's the wonderful thing about this. In this agreement, sin doesn't exclude you from the covenant. Listen to this. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. Why is he faithful and just? What's he faithful and just to? You know, that comes. But the reason he can forgive is because he's faithful and just to something. What? He cleanses us, he goes, but he's faithful and just to something. That's why he forgives you in the second covenant without cutting you off. Why? The covenant. That's what he's faithful and just to. That's what those words mean there. He's faithful and just to his covenant. And in this covenant, there's no way out. You cannot get out. And so what does he do with your sin? He forgives it. He forgives it. He will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You see, the new covenant can never be broken, even by the vilest sin, because Jesus' blood has an eternal capacity to forgive. We have to understand the power of Jesus' blood, that there is not a single sin that can undo the covenantal relationship of a person in love and in relationship with Jesus because his blood covered not just one sin. Look, it's not Jesus' blood hasn't just covered my medium sins. The not so bad ones, you know, pulling Jingo's beard or something like that. You know? It's covered 
everything. Look, this isn't a license to sin, and no Christian would do this, but not even the vilest murder can break that covenant. That's why it's superior. It's an eternal relationship. Listen to this, Hebrews 10. He sets aside the first to establish the second. He does away with the first. Sets it aside. Look, if you set aside your girlfriend when you're dating her, it's not a nice thing to do, but would you expect her to come on a date with you with your new girlfriend? You wouldn't, would you? Oh, well, but not in England anyway. You guys, you know, it's Oz. Who knows? Okay, you know, uh, right. But that's the point. By setting aside the first, he establishes a second. And by that, we have been made holy. It's a foregone conclusion. How long have we been made holy for? Once for all, okay? Because day after day, the first priest, he did his duty. He offered those sacrifices. But what did those sacrifices never do? Take away any sins. But this priest offered for one time one sacrifice for sins. And therefore has, by the one sacrifice, verse 14, he has made what to who? By the one sacrifice, he has done what to who? Made us perfect who? To those in covenant of relationship with him. Jesus has made us perfect. How long for? How long will you be perfect for in God's sight? Forever. 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 And so Jesus, on the night of his betrayal, took a cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Was turning the Judaism upside down, inside out and establishing a new religious community made of Jews and Gentiles, now called the church, with whom he was in an eternal relationship, cut by his blood, one that would see through the covenanters from faith through to eternity. Let me tell you this, I'm finished now. If you are genuinely in love with Jesus, genuinely in relationship with him. You have his promise that he will never leave you, never forsake you. You have his promise that no one or nothing will snatch you from his hand. You have his promise of eternal life with him. This is the blood of the new covenant in my blood, says Jesus.